About 20 years ago when I visited Rome, I, well, I did what probably millions and millions of tourists have done before and since then, I started at the Colosseum. And after I had visited this magnificent structure, then I began to walk towards the Forum. And on the way there, I saw this site. You can't miss it, actually. It's the Arch of Titus. You probably knew that. It is a monument that was built to honor the Roman general for his war victories. And guess which war they were commemorating? I'll give you a hint. Take a closer look at a relief that is carved on the inside of that. Do you see it? Anything jump out at you there? You see the menorah? Why would an arch celebrating a pagan Roman general have a picture of a Jewish menorah engraved on it? Because the Arch of Titus was built to honor his victory in the Jewish war of the first century. And this is the picture of the Romans carrying off the spoils of war from Jerusalem. The Romans first conquered Judea in 63 BC, about a hundred years before Jesus' earthly ministry. And from the start, the Romans discovered that the Jews were a royal pain in the Roman backside. Again and again, rebellions broke out. Again and again, they had to be crushed. It was considered the worst duty. If you were the governor of, of Judea, you had been given the worst possible duty. And then in 66 AD, another rebellion broke out. And Rome had had enough. And so they sent Titus to crush the Roman resistance once and for all, and he did as he was ordered. He surrounded Jerusalem with siege works. He tore down the city wall. He slaughtered the inhabitants ruthlessly, including those that ultimately they chased to Masada. And he destroyed their temple. The temple, as you know, was the center of the Jewish religion. And so for a faith that was built upon daily blood sacrifice to atone for sin and offer us access to God, how would the Jews have their sins forgiven? What would be the nature of their religion going forward? The, the temple has never been rebuilt. Today, the Muslim Dome of the Rock sits where the temple once stood. And all of this devastation, when did this take place? What year did this take place? 70 A.D. Say it out loud. 70 A.D. It's one of them that you ought to memorize. It is one of the darkest moments in the history of the Jewish people. And that is what Pastor Ellis was teaching about last week. That is what he described so well in his sermon that was taken from the first half of Luke chapter 21. Jesus is teaching in the temple environs. He's doing so every morning. He is getting close to the point where he will be arrested. But in the meantime, he is teaching and teaching fearlessly. And Jesus, in that moment, looks ahead 35 years. He predicts, he prophesies what is going to happen to the very city, the very site upon which he was sitting. And of course, it happened exactly as Jesus said it would. But I, I want to ask you this. Why would God allow such a thing? Why would God allow the, His holy city of His chosen people to be destroyed? Why would He allow this magnificent temple that had been built to give access to Him, why would He allow that to be torn down stone by stone? I want to give you at least two reasons. There are probably others, but I'm going to give you two. First of all, it was judgment. 
It was judgment upon a new Jewish nation for their rejection of the Messiah who had been sent to them. For centuries, the Old Testament prophets have predicted that God was going to send a Savior, a Messiah, to them. And when He finally came, not only did they reject Him, they called for His crucifixion. In 70 AD, God rendered judgment upon that people and that city for that action. Here's the second thing, and this is what Pastor Ellis pointed out last week. The destruction of the temple represented that that temporary way of accessing God was done. That way of offering annual, hundreds of thousands of annual blood sacrifices in order to have their sins forgiven and have access to Almighty God, that day was done. It had been replaced. The temple had been replaced with the one true Lamb of God, the perfect one-time sacrifice of Jesus, which would replace all of those sacrifices forever. And that's what Hebrews says too. It has been replaced forever, the work of Christ, the sacrificial work of Christ, once and for all. So those were the primary reasons. First of all, it was judgment upon God's people that Jerusalem was destroyed. And the temple has still not yet been revealed, uh, rebuilt. And secondly, it was a symbol of the fact that Jesus was now the access to God, replacing the work that was done in that temple. But that day, there was another purpose that this prophecy would serve for the purposes of Jesus as he sat there teaching with the temple in sight. It was the, this prophecy about this Roman triumph over the rebels in Jerusalem, which would occur in the distant future, was a glimpse of what would happen in a far distant future, when a greater king would return for one last great victory over evil. So in Luke chapter 21, there's a lot of background, but you need it to understand this. In Luke chapter 21, verse 25, Jesus pivots up until this point, he's been talking about what's going to happen in 35 years when Titus it destroys Jerusalem. But now he pivots. And Jesus is not talking about Titus conquering Jerusalem in 35 years. Now Jesus is looking ahead to his own triumphant return, his second coming, what the Bible calls his parousia, his coming. So let us turn and let's begin our journey through the second half of Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 25. Here's what Jesus teaches as he sat looking at the temple in the background. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That word power, dunamis, dynamite, great glory, doxa, doxology. The Son of Man coming with dynamite and doxology. That's what they're going to see. This is the word of the Lord. End times. The technical word, the theological term for it is eschatology. Say that with me. And it comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last things, end times. And American Christendom is obsessed with eschatology. We just are. We are obsessed with it. A man approached me even last week and said, when are you going to teach the book of Revelation? 
And I said, well, I did. And I, did, I taught it in 2000. I taught it from the first verse to the very last verse. It took more than a year. It was the hardest sermon series I ever preached. It was the most popular sermon series I ever preached, unsurprisingly. So if you want to hear what I have to say about the book of Revelation, you can find the link online in your user's guide. Bring lots of popcorn because it's going to take you a long time to get through it. Eschatology is a challenging topic because Bible-believing Christians of goodwill have such divergent views, don't they? You know that, right? Will there be a literal 1,000-year millennial reign of Jesus? Or is that a figurative term, as it is in so many other aspects of the book of Revelation? Will there be a great tribulation? Will there be a two-stage return of Christ, including what is called a rapture, when all Christians will just be taken up from the earth? Or will there be only one final appearance of Jesus when he comes in power? Is the Antichrist a real person in our future? Or was that a code that John used to describe Emperor Nero? When, when we put all of this together, you have a lot of flavors of end-time theology, of eschatology. Pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, pre-millennial, post-millennial, all-millennial. It can get very confusing and very divisive. I've decided I'm pan-millennial. It will all pan out in the end. Which, by the way, is kind of what Jesus is, I think, as we read his teaching. He's not giving us a lot of details here. Now remember, Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. He's not been arrested. He has not been crucified. He has not yet been resurrected. He hasn't yet returned to his Father in heaven. And yet Jesus is already looking beyond that day to the day in the distant future when he will come back and finish what he started. The kingdom that first appeared through him, and he talks about it all the time. You've heard it through the Gospel of Luke. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is with you. The kingdom of God is at hand. That kingdom, which we now see only in part, will be perfected when Jesus returns for the last and final time on earth. In fact, we are told that he is going to recreate the earth and recreate all of the heavens, a new heavens and new earth. He is going to make this earth back to its original, pristine, creative order. Did you know that? And that is where all of his followers will enjoy him and each other for all of eternity. And if that's a surprise to you, if you thought that we were going to be floating around in heaven for all of eternity, nope. Read Revelation 21. And frankly, I'm glad. The other sounds a little boring. I'd rather be enjoying the wonder of God's creation right here with Jesus present. That's what is promised in Revelation 21. But in this end times teaching that we hear from Jesus, he has nothing to say about a millennial reign, nothing to say about an antichrist, nothing to say about a rapture. His comments are sparing. He has a lot to say about signs in the heavens and earth and, and in the seas. And he says we ought to be alert, and he always says that about his end times. He says, you've got to be ready. And when it comes, he says, it's going to be very clear. When my return comes, it's going to be very clear. You won't have any question about it. But for 2,000 years, at different times, people have been absolutely sure that the end times had arrived. This is one of those for many. 
But 2,000 years we've had this. Nero, people were sure Nero was the Antichrist. And then they were sure that Emperor Domitian was the Antichrist. And then, if Hitler wasn't the Antichrist, who could it be? And, and then they thought Gorbachev was the Antichrist. He had the mark of the beast right there, that birthmark. They were sure he was the Antichrist. But Jesus says that when the time comes, everyone's going to know it. It will be abundantly clear. And the punchline for this, the reason we'll know that is that when the real end times arrive, the Son of Man will come too. That is Jesus' nickname for himself. He always called himself the Son of Man. And he says, I'm coming back, and I'm coming back on a cloud. Now, that doesn't mean that he's riding on a nifty celestial chariot. That is a word for power. Every time you see that word in the Bible, it, it almost always represents the power of God. Remember when Moses led the Hebrew folks out of, out of Egypt? How did he guide those people by day? A pillar of cloud. And when uh, God came to meet with Moses in the tabernacle, their traveling temple, how did the people know that God had come to meet with Moses? A cloud would descend upon the tabernacle. It was the presence of God. Look at Luke's gospel. When Jesus took his three buddies up on the mountain for what we call the transfiguration, to hang out with God the Father and a few of his close friends from heaven, how, how did they know that God had come? Because a cloud descended upon that mountain. And think about what's going to happen in Acts chapter 1. We are told that when Jesus returns to the Father, when he returned to the Father, he went by way of a cloud. The cloud is not their method of transport. The cloud represents the very presence of Almighty God. Jesus, we are being told by himself, Jesus will return not as a meek carpenter, not as a lowly shepherd of his people, Jesus will return, Luke says, in power and glory. Dunamis and doxa. He once laid his life down in utter humble sacrifice, but that work is done. The next time Jesus comes, there will be no mistaking who he is. And according to Paul, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will know that he is almighty God returning in power to reclaim and redeem his broken world. Hallelujah. That's why eschatology ought to matter to us. Not because we want to predict and forecast and know and control and develop these complicated timelines and indicators. No, because the world is broken and groans for redemption. The creator, savior, king is returning one day. And when he does, he will make all things wrong right. And isn't that our longing? Isn't that the longing of all but the most horrendous beasts in this world? That justice would be done, that things would be made right. We know that things are not as they ought to be. And there is no politician, there is no leader, there is no party, there is no ruler who seems to have the will or the power to make things right. Only Jesus can do that. And he has promised that he will do that someday. That is one of our great hopes. That's one of the essentials of our faith as far as we EPC folks are concerned. Jesus is coming back in power and he will make all things right. In the meantime... What do we do, beloved? Shall we speculate some more? 
Shall we predict? I grew up during the 70s. Perhaps you remember. That was the time when Hal Lindsey was so popular. He had just written a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. I got it as a high schooler. I consumed it. Because he was explaining in great detail how and when Jesus was coming back. In fact, I at Yakima, I as a high school student went to hear him speak in person at a seminar in Davis High School, if you can imagine. Imagine a, a high school sponsoring such an event. And I remembered walking out of there convinced that Jesus was going to return within the month. Absolutely convinced. That was 50 years ago. And then I remember reading another book by another prominent Christian author that you would recognize who actually put a year on Christ's return in print in his original edition, 1983. 1983, that was 40 years ago. By the way, they removed that line in the second edition. <laughs> Jesus once told his disciples, no one, no one no one, not even he, not even Jesus, knows when the end times will be. No one, only the Father. And yet we continue to speculate and predict and forecast. So the first thing I will say about this speculation is, stop it! Stop it! We are obsessed with this, especially as American Christians you should know that much of the teaching that circulates these days in Christendom, much of the doctrine surrounding popular American eschatology is relatively recent. It's, it's really, for instance, for, I mean, it all, much of this came about in the, in the 19th century, in the 1800s. For 1800 years, for instance, the Christian church had no idea of a doctrine that we now call the rapture. The idea that Christians would be snatched up from this world so that they would not have to go through the great tribulation. This doctrine was an innovation resulting from a vision of a young girl in a prayer meeting in Glasgow, Scotland in the 1830s. And it became particularly popular in the Western church. And I think it continues to be popular in the Western church because we arrogantly can't imagine that God would allow us Western Christians to experience persecution and martyrdom. Even though Christians around the world and down through the ages have suffered just such a fate. Even though Jesus promised his followers exactly that fate. But not American Christians, surely. As I said, I understand that godly and Bible-believing Christians differ on these matters. That is absolutely okay. We do not consider the eschatology, to be the, the nature of eschatology, to be a, a salvation issue. We can disagree on this. But so many Christians become so focused on speculating about the end times that they neglect their, their own Christian witness in this present time. Jesus is coming back someday. He will make all things right. He will destroy the forces of evil. He will kill Satan and his minions. He will establish his, perfectly, his perfect heavenly kingdom on this restored earth. That is the historical teaching of the Christian church for 2,000 years. We don't know when it will happen. But when the time comes, Jesus says, it will be abundantly clear because he himself will show up in power. Meantime, how should we behave what does Jesus want us to do as we await his certain return? He tells us in this passage, and the passage that we're going to read is shortly, three things. He says, lift up your heads. 
lift up your hearts and lift up your hands. So let's take a look. Verse, first again, verse 27 and 28. Jesus says, and, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Remember dynamite and doxa. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. When these things happen, straighten up, stand tall, raise your head because your redemption is drawing near. When I was a kid and I got in trouble, my mom would say, you better straighten up and fly right. Anyone ever hear that? Anyone ever say that? I didn't even know what it meant, actually. But I knew I, I needed to do something differently than what I was doing. You better straighten up and fly right. But that's what Jesus says. You better straighten up. When you see these things, these signs in the heavens and, and on the earth and in the seas, when you see me coming in, in dynamite and doxology, straighten up, raise your heads. The only other time that word straighten up is used in Luke's gospel is in chapter 13 when Jesus healed a woman with a disabling spirit. For 18 years she had been sent, so bent over by this evil spirit that she could not lift her head. But Jesus cast out that evil spirit and she was able to straighten up and lift her head and worship God. This is a message of hope, beloved. So often we watch what is happening in the world and it strikes fear in us. Even in the hearts of us Christians who ought to know better. We are afraid of China. We are afraid of Russia. We are afraid of Hamas. We are afraid of the Democrats. Or we are afraid of the Republicans. We live bound over in a spirit of anxiety because we don't really believe that Jesus is Lord. We don't really believe that he is coming back in power and glory. We don't really believe that he will set all things right. We are bent over in fear. And Jesus says, stop it. I deliver you from that debilitating spirit of fear and despair. Stand up. Lift your heads and look. Because it isn't bad news that's coming. It's great news. Your redemption draws near. Lift up your heads, Chapel Hill. Look with new eyes upon the things that seem so terrifying to everyone else. They cannot stand. They cannot resist the power and the glory of our Redeemer Jesus. Stop living bent over in fear. Start living right now as if you believe that we have a Redeemer who is greater than the worst that the devil can throw at us. We Christians need to be realistic. We don't have to sugarcoat it when things are bad in this world. But the last line that we ought to utter in every conversation ought to be, but Jesus is still Lord. He is coming back, and he is going to make all things right. So lift your heads, Jesus says. Lift your heads. Stand up and lift your heads. And then he says, lift your hearts. Lift your hearts. Verse 34, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, like a trap. I was in Orlando a couple of weeks ago for a tall church, a large church gathering of my, my dearest friends. Uh, it was the last one of those that I'm going to be attending, so it was it really... I was glad that I wasn't flying a Max because I got there and back. And as I was leaving the hotel room, 
I forgot something, and I backed back into the room for a second, uh, kind of holding the door open with my butt, and somehow the door handle hooked into my zippered rear pocket. And, and I, I couldn't slide off. I, I couldn't get my, handle, the, my hand back there to pull the handle out. I was dangling there. On the, in an Orlando hotel by my pants pocket, and the maid was rolling closer and closer to me. The last thing I needed was for her to find me there hanging, trapped. Jesus warns us about being trapped. He says, if you don't lift your heavy hearts, my return is going to catch you by surprise. You're going to be trapped. Are you living with a heavy heart these days? Are you depressed? Heavy hearts distract us. Heavy hearts become self-absorbed. Heavy hearts prevent you from being alert to what God is doing around you. Jesus says that you can weigh down your heart in two different ways. He says, first of all, you can live it, uh, you weigh down your heart by living recklessly. That's the word dissipation. It's a great word. I bet you didn't use that one this week. Dissipation means reckless indulgence. Reckless indulgence. You remember the expression, if it feels good, do it. More from this group will remember that than probably my second group. That is dissipation. If you drink alcohol to cope, or you smoke weed to cope, or turn to drugs to cope, if you have porn sites that you visit, or are living sexually permissive lives, if you are addicted to your credit card, you're addicted to your food, or to your devices, or to anything else that numbs you and distracts you, that is dissipation. That's overindulgence. We live in a dissipating culture. This world promises us that such behaviors will make us feel good. It is a lie. Dissipation, irresponsible living, depresses us. It makes our hearts heavy. It makes us dull to the voice of the Lord and blind to the signs of the times. That's what irresponsible living does. So does hyper-responsible living. Jesus goes on to say. It's the other end of the spectrum. If this is dissipation, then hyper-responsible living is over here. Jesus calls it the cares of this life. Are you addicted to worry? Do you look for things to be anxious about? Is that your hobby? Are you in a constant state of turmoil when you don't have every single thing under your control? Hyper-responsibility can be just as crushing, just as weighty, as irresponsibility. Jesus seems to be saying, find a balance in your life. Live a life of balance. Have fun, but don't overdose on fun. Live responsibly, but don't freak out about those responsibilities because either extreme produces a heavy heart. It depresses you. It distracts you. And when I come for you, you won't be ready. You'll be trapped. So Jesus says, lift your heads. And lift your hearts. And then finally he says, in essence, lift your hands. It's hidden in here, but you'll see it. Jesus says, I think it's verse 36, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Jesus' final admonition to his listeners is to raise their hands in prayer. That's how they prayed. Raise your hands in prayer. If you see headlines that disturb you, if you wonder whether or not we might not be in the end times in some sort of great tribulation, are you praying about it? 
Or you're just worrying about it. I, I know this is pretty basic, but I'll bet if I were to ask here this morning, how many of you set a time aside yesterday just to pray about what is going on in this world? I think we might be disappointed by how many hands did not get raised. And if we do pray about what is going on around us, do we do it formulaically? Do we do it in, in rote? If indeed these are the end times that are upon us, the single most important thing that we can do to be ready is to lift our hands in prayer. Regular, fervent, persistent prayer. Every day, if you have a Chapel Hill app, you receive a, a, a prayer, a reminder to pray for revival. We do all the work for you. You get the prayer, you get the scripture text, all you gotta do is read and pray it, do you? Every Tuesday, our deacons lead a prayer meeting right over in that chapel. Every Tuesday night. Have you ever come? On a regular basis, we have evenings of worship and prayer. Our next one is, in Fe is February 4th with an incredible worship leader who's going to be our guest. Has it ever crossed your mind to join us in that experience? If you are not praying, you are depriving yourself of the single greatest spiritual resource that Jesus offers to you in good times and bad. If you are not praying, why not? Jesus says, lift your hands in prayer. Jesus is coming back. He promised he would. We don't know when. Nobody does. And those who spend a lot of time speculating are wasting their time. We don't need to worry about it, but we need to be ready for it. And so Jesus says, lift your hands in prayer. Lift your heavy, distracted hearts. And lift your heads in hope because your redemption draws nigh. So Jesus, once again, we are reminded by your word to turn our eyes to you and you alone, not to the things around us, not to the unease that we experience, not to the upheaval that is in this world, but has been in this world since you came. May we turn, may we straighten up and lift our heads. May we lift our hearts in the hope of your Lordship, may we lift our hands in prayer, praying as you taught us to pray with all of our heart, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, both now and in an age yet to come. And so we pray it again, Lord. We pray it again. Would you give us a renewed hope? Would you give us a renewed encouragement? And would you renew us in our conviction that you are the God who answers prayer? And you will continue to do so until we meet you face to face in all of your dynamite and doxology. For we ask this in your matchless name. Amen. Creation. This is all creation.
get out and worship. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone Lord? 